Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. John, uh, give us a kind of overview of what you're thinking. You know, Matt, in becoming Eastern Orthodox, has been introduced into a different sort of spiritual life. Say, in my own life, I grew up in, a, you know, mainline Protestantism, Disciples of Christ. And I don't, I mean, people prayed, but I, I remember as a child, every now and then I would hear somebody talk about like praying for an hour or something. And I used to think to myself, what in the world are you doing? Because the only prayers I had been exposed to were, you know, sort of mainline Protestant. We pray for people we know. We pray for the world to get better. And then we say amen. (laughs) It's really quick. Like, what are you doing? You know, Uh, I remember thinking that as a kid. And it wasn't long before I became an actual confirmed Episcopalian, I guess, dabbling in theology from Anglicans and usually from England, folks from England got interested in more of the spiritual life and started praying the daily office as best as I knew how. And I, I, can, I can distinctly remember making like my wife do that with me. And I don't think she got it at first. Uh, she thought, what are you, what are we doing? <laughs> but I was a weirdo. So of course that would be like the sort of thing that I would want to do. And it just realizing how starkly different the practice of Christianity can be for folks, depending on where you're from in the country, really, is what decides it or what tradition in Anglicanism. But I've, I meet folks that have cradle Episcopalians and have no clue even about the riches of the Anglican tradition. It's a fascinating thing. And once you start teaching people how to pray, it liberates them in some ways to realize that, oh, this there's something to this. It's not just I show up on Sunday and pretend to be interested for an hour and a half and then go home but there's actually something to this life and it can change me and transform me etc and so i thought we just might have a conversation about that hey i'm here with uh matt and john these guys soaring spiritually as they do we're going to discuss spirituality i'm very eager to have this conversation i think that the tradition that uh, i'm still in and that they've both left If I had to critique it, this would be the critique, is that there is a kind of dearth of appreciation for a depth of spirituality, particularly in the Restoration Movement. I'm not going to get carried away here. I want to turn it over to John, and he's kind of going to lead us through this conversation. It was funny, as you were saying that, I... I was thinking about what I had just said, and I remembered somebody that I we we all at least you and I know him, Paul. I don't know how well Matt knows Jedediah McCullough, and I can remember Jed being one of the first people I met that prayed the Jesus Prayer. You could tell when you meet Jed, he's got something I don't have. <laughs> I guess that's what I mean to say. Come to find out where that was coming from was a deep appreciation of Christian spirituality. Is even as you say that, like I don't think there's a reason why it can't work with a Stone Campbell movement. As far as I know, Jed has never looked anywhere else, you know. But first I just thought we might start by talking about like what do people mean when they say the spiritual life or Christian spirituality or Christian mysticism? How does that register? Uh, for us, we're all in different places. 
Like when you hear those words, what does that make you think or what, how would you define those things? It's a, it's a huge question. You know, it's a, it's a hard question really because Paul and I were just talking about this the other day and he said, you know, I, I, what I think that we wouldn't want to do is to say that, well, the spiritual life is only, you know, we don't want to compartmentalize it. We don't want to say that it's, it's this over here, but not over, uh, over here, but that it's just a really different way to, I think, to just live and move and have your being, you know? And so when Paul says, you know, we soar spiritually and all this, he's, he's being facetious because we know that the closer closer that we draw to our Lord Jesus Christ, the more that we see how, uh, how earthly, how fleshly, you know, we are and how concerned we are for our own comfort or at least me i'm speaking for me you know that i'm way more concerned usually for my own comfort and then things that are above you know the things here below i think that for me the spiritual life is trying to or at least mysticism can be a tricky word what i don't mean by it i guess is some sort of sort of a an ecstatic experience although it can be that less of maybe like an altered state of consciousness, although it can also be that even. I think that the reality of things, which for us Christians is Christ himself, God, is usually concealed, at least to me. For me, the spiritual life or mysticism is a way to try to cultivate eyes to see, ears to hear. We can talk about the different words, you know, the noose and these, you know, the spiritual, the eye of the spirit, you know, the eye of the heart, to try to cultivate a way to see reality that isn't bound by just the sense perception that we have, but that there's something more. You know, for Christians, we believe that the Logos pervades all of creation. And so the work of the spiritual life, I think, is to try to discern Christ in all things. And for me, a lot of times that happens in conversations like this with my brothers. We get to share experiences and share ideas and things like that in scriptures. And we have a text thread where we say, oh, I've been reading this. And what do you think about that? And we kind of keep a conversation going. And I think that's been a huge part of it for me. Um, I'm trying to get better though. You know, the, the tradition, at least in the Orthodox church has more to do with silence. I think a lot of times, you know, so we have like the Hesychast and the, the people like that who try to cultivate that sort of stillness so someone like St. Isaac of Syria says, love silence above all things, you know, which is hard for me because I'm, I'm a talker by nature, you know, and I'm working through this in the same way you guys, you know, you guys are to try to figure out exactly what the spiritual life is and what mystic- Christian mysticism is. Of course, there's a bunch of different mysticisms depending upon the tradition that we're talking about and different ways of thinking about that. I think that it includes really just from the moment that I open up my eyes in the morning to, you know, the way that I try to do it is I, I, when my feet hit the floor, I make the sign of the cross and, you know, I say something like, you know, blessed is our God now and always to the ages of ages or something like blessed is the kingdom of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit to try to start to immediately see the world through that lens rather than just like, oh man, I got to go get my coffee. Now, the second thing that I do is I go get the coffee, you know what I mean? And then I, you know, say, say hi to Margaret. But I think that what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is then, you know, and then immediately saying, okay, the, after I get the cup of coffee, I need to do my morning prayers. For me, prayer has always been the most difficult thing, not just to understand, but to do. Because for like John was describing, I, I saw, I guess for like the longest time I thought, I don't understand any of this. You know, I don't, if if God has ordained all things, I guess maybe I was being too practical about it. You know, I was trying to understand some sort of practical, I guess, application, but I I just didn't understand. And and still in many ways, prayer is very mysterious to me. But the the bottom line is, is I wasn't doing it. 
So I think that what, for me, ultimately, what the spiritual life is, is a life of prayer. It's, it's at least becoming, I'm trying to get to that point, right? And so whether that happens in our morning prayers and then like prayers, you know, during the hours, like John was saying, or even in a conversation like this, hopefully we're always doing it in the context of prayer and, and, and sort of a communion with God that for me happens a lot of times when I'm talking to my brothers, you know what I mean? Where I, it's like somehow Christ becomes present to me maybe in, in a way that is a little bit different during prayer. But I would say that that's the, the biggest thing for me is just like with John, I'm like, well, what if, what do you talk about for, you know, and when Paul says pray without ceasing, it's like, what does that mean? What does that look like? How can, you know, am I just going to keep yammering on like I'm doing right now to, to God? But the bottom line is it's kind of a convicting thought. It's just that I, I just was really kind of, I would rather just read, you know, spiritual text or, or have a conversation with you guys or whatever than to actually take the time to try to learn how to pray. And I do think that that's a, a huge part of the, the Christian spiritual life and trying to cultivate. I found that the more that I'm learning how to pray and I, by no means I, I have a super long way to go, but it seems like the the more I apply myself to that work, the more that I feel like I'm I'm beginning to see things and have insights and things that I that I didn't before, and maybe see things differently. And not only that, but just to, to experience God um, in, in, in a different way. And we're going to get into this in some of the other questions. But uh, you know, at least in the Orthodox tradition, having a, a relationship also with the saints is a huge game changer. You know, so that's that's a um, something that even just a few years ago. I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't had what I would now call like a friendship, you know, with uh, the Theotokos, you know, Mary, the mother of God, or with some of the saints or, or, or with my guardian angel. And at first I didn't even know how to do, I was like, well, what does that look like? What does that even mean? You know, what does that look like? And it's kind of weird maybe even at first, but I think that um, something happens when we take that kind of step of faith and we just try to, you know, the, the, the church gives us prayers to and that's another important thing, too, I think, is that extemporaneous prayer is one way to do it, and there is a place for that. But I think that the prayers of the church give us, they've taught us how to pray, to you know, to say our prayer to our guardian angel, uh, which I think is a, 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 absolutely a, a real thing, and, and prayers to the saints and things like that. Um, as our friends, I think that that's, for me, a lot of what prayer is, is that you're cultivating a friendship with, with God both with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. For me, you know, with the Theotokos, uh, you know, Mary, um, with some of the saints. The only word I know how to explain it would be a mystical sort of. It's a very different way, I think, to to pray and to live, to be able to have a, a, a friendship with the family of God. So not just God himself, of course, that is, that's what we're ultimately always in the business of doing. But in and through my friends, you know, you guys who I'm talking to now, but also we believe, you know, that the saints are alive and maybe in some sense more alive than we are. They're, they're with Christ, at least the saints, right? You know, in a way that I'm not. I'm learning these things as I go. For me, I think that the, the Christian spiritual life ultimately in origins, you know, says this, that it, ultimately it's a prayer or, or even maybe even a song. Yeah, so that would be the first part of, of, of my answer. But there's a lot, so much more that we could say about it. I guess I would say very much I feel like a beginner <laughs> at this and... Uh had an experience this last few weeks that made me feel even more so that way. I was off uh, and at home rather than at the church every day because of Katie's operation and managed to say the daily office and do some other things at home, even with the two kids. And I was mostly with the two kids this past couple of weeks. And I've always 
used them as a sort of excuse for when I fail at this because I just think, oh, it's the act of life. There's a distinction in the in historic Christian ways of talking about this between the act of life and the contemplative life. And of course, the contemplative life is the life that like monastics live. And of course, they can pray all day because uh, they've been given the gift of grace to go do that. Whereas, you know, everybody else has to be active. And so it looks different. But I managed to sort of do that. I was saying, oh, I guess the kids aren't the problem. And then it really hit me when I was sitting in the office this week. And I realized uh, how much time I had just sort of wasted <laughs> just being here. I don't know, cleaning up my desk and books and papers and looking, trying to get caught up after being gone. And I'd realized that because I came in and immediately started doing something, I just totally skipped doing morning prayer. And I thought, oh, the kids aren't the problem at all. As Matt, you were saying, it, it is sort of your whole life. It's the way you think about your life, the way you think about other people. I think it's something along the lines of maybe understanding the world as it is understood by God, as like an object of God's love. Understanding yourself that way as well. I think the words sometimes get in the way. If we especially mysticism, what's that? You know, or uh, spirituality means so many different things now. Uh, that it probably didn't a hundred years ago when that word started catching on. But even when I went to seminary in Neshota House, we didn't use mysticism or spirituality to talk about these things. We said ascetical theology, which is sort of even even older way of talking about what this is all about. And usually people just kind of raise their eyebrows. Oh, what's that? And so I think sometimes the idea or the language can be a barrier. Actually, I think of another example. Thomas Merton, when he was first considering the monastic life or the monastic state of life uh, really didn't know what he was doing. And so he was trying to get books and he just kind of indiscriminately because I, I thought this was actually fascinating before the internet. How would you find out some of this without finding the right people? And so this, he just stumbles into Catholic libraries and asks for what they have. And they don't always have a very good selection. He ends up with the Ignatian exercises and he is at first afraid to do them. Because he thinks, you know, what's going to happen with this Christian, this mysticism stuff? This has got to be different somehow than just going to mass, etc. I don't think that's uncommon even now. You either have people that plunge headlong into it because of mysticism supposed to be, so it's sort of the new agey thing. Or you have people who it bothers or puts off just the language itself. But I don't, I don't really think it's anything that exciting. It's really just about understanding the world as it's loved by God. And it can be just as simple as saying morning and evening prayer, these rote prayers every day. It can be, uh, as you said, Matt, finally the connection was realizing that, oh, you spend an hour in prayer not by talking for an hour, but by shutting up for an hour. <laughs> and that makes all the difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah. another practical implication, at least for me, is is that, that I never got, you know, that if you're truly in a friendship with someone in communication with them in prayer, uh, it's probably going to help you to not sin. That's what breaks your conversation off with, with God and with the saints. So for this is a very practical application, right? That, well, if you're going to, you know, say drink too much or whatever, it's like that might yeah, break your communion, you know, with, with God and with the saints, because you're just sort of being intoxicated with something else, I guess. Right. Or, or there's any number of, of activities that you can engage in where they can kind of get in the way of, of prayer. Right. And so I guess that is a practical application of just trying to say, well, 
if you're, if you're in communication with God, which I fall out of all the time, you know, and, and, and I see it that when I do fall, it's, it's almost like a rule that I can look back and say, Oh, you know, I, and this happens all the time and it almost sounds cliche, but it really does happen a lot for me that whenever I don't start my day with the prayers and, and really continue, I try to hit the, you know, the nine o'clock, the 12 o'clock, the three o'clock, the six, just with a short, you know, sort of litany of prayers. My day isn't focused in that way. And it, it happens, it happens quite often that I end up, you know, falling off in some way. It's a, it's a humbling thing, prayer, because we were talking about abiding in Christ in the last conversation that we were having with Paul. And it's like, well, how do you do that? I mean, I, I certainly think that prayer is, at least for me, needs to become the main way that I, that I abide in, in, in Christ. And so we, we're going to talk, I'm sure, about the Jesus prayer and stuff like that, you know, and, and how praying without ceasing might look. You know, because those, you know, rote prayers, as we call them or whatever, you know, sometimes I go through, I have like a little, my priest gave me this little, um, it's a book of Ukrainian, it's their prayer rule that I use. And it covers all the bases. You go through and, and, and do all those, those types of prayers. But there's something about doing that, it's just like any other type of exercise or discipline. You know, if you go to the gym, if you swim or whatever, it's like you, you go even when you don't feel like going and you end up getting stronger. You know, you end up getting better at your craft. You end up getting in better shape, as it were. And, and perhaps it's those times when you don't feel like doing it the most that you go, that that's where you're growing because, and you're just doing the discipline of saying, okay. And then when you're engaged in that, you, you find yourself sometimes, or at least for me, you know, maybe you'll get insights that you didn't have before. Or even, you know, it's like I've prayed this prayer a thousand times and I never noticed this word or this concept that's a beautiful thing. So, and you begin to learn how to wrestle too. That's the other side of this, right? Is that it's, it's a sort of spiritual warfare where you begin to, to get in better shape in that regard because we're wrestling against these powers that are set against our uh, against us. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess, so I have questions for you, Paul, just almost out of just pure curiosity because I realized probably just about now I have been a practicing Episcopalian for as long as I was pretty serious Christian in general. So it's like five years before. And then, of course, I mean, I kind of grew up going to church, but, you know, you just get brought to church for a lot of the time when you're a child. I don't know that it had much of an effect, but for about five years, you know, took Christianity seriously in the Stone Campbell movement. Mm-hmm. And all I can remember was sort of a superficial approach there was like a class that had all these sorts of different ways you might do this. Spiritual disciplines is what they were called or something. And they seem, I don't, I don't have the book anymore, but it, it would appear that they were just sort of plucked arbitrarily out of some out of the Christian tradition, some not, you know, some as recently as things people cooked up in the 20th century, some things very old, but there was no real context. I'm just going to say I got nothing out of it. But I wonder what what was your own experience spending much more time? And I mean, I imagine you interact or thought about it, at least in like Japan, you had actual mystics around, right? Or people claiming to be Buddhist. What was your own way of working through this or even maybe keeping mysticism at arm's length for good reasons? I don't know. You know, when I began the Christian life at about 13, it was new for me. And to say that I began the Christian life, you know, you have a childlike understanding of God and God's presence. At that point, I I wasn't connecting that with going to church. I, in fact, spent, and my parents were very flexible, and so I, I would just go off into the wilderness by myself, literally, usually by myself. I saw it as a spiritual communion. 
And so I think my own proclivities, my own tendencies that are very unrestoration movement like were toward this kind of spirituality. And by this, I'm not trying to describe this as necessarily. In, in one sense, it was healthy. In another sense, in other words, I think I was such an odd kid, just socially. And, and so it was sort of, it was a kind of time of healing. And I, I think that partly what is taking place when we go into a deep dissociative spirituality, and maybe that's what it was. I, w- I was really doing that. It was certainly a connection with nature. It was co- a connection in that sense. I'm hearing the same language as you all are describing this, a language of connection, of connectivity that connects us to God, that connects us to the saints or to the the world. And I think that for some of us that when we, we may have been so dissociated, so disconnected, so alienated, that our first sense of spirituality is a kind of withdrawal. I'm not saying that's necessarily what's happening in a monastic community, but I think that sometimes that sort of monasticism or my own spiritual sensibility as a child was dissociative. Did I grow out of it? I don't know. Or or did I lose it? As you all know, the restoration movement because of its history, you know, that it's, a, it's focused on, at least in the beginning, to say it's intellectual may, may not quite ring true, but the idea is that it was very propositional, very focused on the intellect, and not a lot of focus on a deep uh, spirituality in the way that we're describing it, this connectedness. My own inclinations have always been that way. On the other hand, in, in this particular movement, that that is not that's something that I w- was not encouraged or developed, and something that I naturally was given to. I think you have to nourish that. You have to grow in that. And so I had to come to that by other means. And I think some of us are just forced into that by life, by suffering. People that have uh, this sort of deep deep spirituality. You, know, you think of black spirituality. Oh yeah, there, <laughs> there is a profound spirituality there that is very much connected with suffering, with black suffering. And I think that's true in all of our lives, that it is our, a kind of the way that we take into the, the world. And, and that our, when, we, when we say spirituality, it's really a kind of our response to that suffering. It's something I'm still learning. We're in a kind of strange time that there is kind of a shallow spiritualism where, I don't know, evangelicalism that... It's for sale. Like right now, spirituality is for sale (laughs) in America. I think that's what comes across as very shallow. I I was never actively involved in the charismatic movement. You know, that was just everybody around me. There was a kind of spirituality there that I never... I can't say that it, I, I felt attuned to it. It seemed there seemed to be a falseness to it or a shallowness to it that I, I couldn't get. And so, I, I, in a sense, that is, I think, been translated into evangelicalism as a whole. Oh, everybody's really spiritual now. That's not the sense I'm getting, that there is a kind of shallowness to it. You know, in Bonhoeffer's phrase, a kind of cheap grace, a cheap spirituality. Yeah, I think to to navigate those two things, 
in this time is not easy. Coming from a Protestant background, I that brings true to me because, of course, even the word work has a kind of a negative connotation, right? When it comes to a certain sort of understanding of theology. But it's been my experience moving forward that this thing takes work and, it, and it's hard work. So the work of repentance, prayer, you know, there's times whenever prayer is, is, is difficult. It's, you know, it's difficult. So it's just like going to the gym again, you're right. It's like, it takes work. You, you, you might have to go, you don't feel like it, but you got to go and you got to work hard when you're there, you know, or you're, or you're not going to grow. I don't know if that's totally related to what you were, to what you were saying there, Paul, but I do think that part of like what ascetical, you know, spirituality is really putting a focus on is doing the work of prayer, doing the work of fasting doing the work of maybe giving alms or something like that to really come out of pocket, you know, where it's going to hurt or whatever, or, um, or like, like John said, doing the work of just shutting up and forcing yourself to be quiet or, or maybe even forcing yourself to withdraw and to say, you know what, maybe I do need to go like take a walk and, and, and get away for a little bit and, and, and get alone with God because we can take refuge sometimes, or at least I can in community or take refuge in things that are more comfortable. And so to me, what Christian spirituality has to do with, you know, it's take up your cross and follow me. Like, you know, I, one of my favorite things is in um, the Orthodox, whenever we're chrismated, the, like one of the last things that the, the priest does is, you know, your godparent gets you a cross and the cross is placed, you know, a chain to wear, and he puts it up on the altar, which is very important uh, in the Orthodox sort of understanding. And whenever the chrismation is over, the priest goes up and he grabs the cross and he says, our Lord Jesus said that if anyone is to follow me, he's got to take up his cross and follow me, you know, and he puts the, you know, you put the cross on. And so to me, that's not just like these epic acts of glorious martyrdom or something like that, you know, some sort of romantic understanding, but just taking up your cross of saying, well, I'd like to play PlayStation, you know, or whatever, but instead I'm going to do some work here, but it bears fruit just like any other type of work that we really work hard at. And maybe things that we're maybe even not particularly gifted at or good at that. Maybe you have to work all that, like me, you have to work all the harder, you know, at something like prayer. Uh, but then you get unexpected sort of quote unquote results. The point isn't to just see things that you didn't see before or to know things that you didn't know before. But the, the point of all this is, I think, is to become united with God. Like, so to me, that's what really Christian mysticism is, is, you know, theosis, is unity, is union with God. To me, that's like the payoff or whatever you want to call it, is you're like, I feel like I know our Lord Jesus Christ better than I did, you know, a year or two ago. Or, I've, or I feel like I know the saints better. You know, these are, I, I was thinking we had a liturgy this morning for the nativity of, the, of John the Forerunner. And I was thinking about how... Now, you know, before I used to think like, boy, whenever I, whenever I sin, it's like I'm, I'm singing against God. But I was thinking about and during the liturgy that now I kind of have an understanding where it's like, man, when I sin, I'm sinning against like my family too. Like these are the saints. These are the, these are, this is like the great cloud, cloud of witnesses who are, who are sort of, I don't know how it all works. I don't understand, you know, what they can see and what they can't see, et cetera. But I do know that having a relationship with say, you know, Mary, the Theotokos, it's like, well, she's, you know, she's, she's the virgin. She's pure. She's the mother of our Lord. And I'm married to, you know, I'm married to my wife. It's hard to explain, but I think that anytime you have a friendship and it's a true friendship, that's really going to change how you live, right? Or, 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 or the way that you maybe do things. It's like, man, I don't want to not only sin against God 
and, and, and like hurt him in that way. But it's like, I don't want to let my, my family down. Like, I, I don't want to let you guys down. And, and I know that some of this might sound like a little weird or even crazy or whatever. I remember people used to say, oh, if you, if you lose something, you know, you pray to this thing, or if you're going to do this, you pray. And I thought, you know, hooey or whatever, but that has not been my experience. But once I actually tried to, when I, I started actually doing it, there's been times where I've prayed to certain saints about certain things and things have happened. Or, you know, I found strength that I, did, that I didn't have before. And, and I was talking about theosis and about becoming united with God. But for me, what that necessarily means then is becoming one with the saints, with creation, with reality, with consciousness itself, right? With being like Christ in the world, to have the mind of Christ. That to me is the, is kind of like what we're trying to do is to try to always be cultivating and having the mind of Christ. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was always praying without ceasing. So if we imagine that we can be united with God or to live the Christian life or to have maybe even to do something like read the Bible or, or whatever, it's like, yeah, but if we're not doing the the disciplines that the church has given us, we're probably not going to be able to get everything out of it that we could. You know? Let me bring a, a dark picture. As oh, no, I, I, I was coming. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, Slavoj Žižek talks about spirituality. And of course, his picture is that Buddhism is, he's, he's really down on Buddhism, but there's a kind of pop Buddhism that's very popular today in the United States. And of course, his picture is, you know, the Wall Street trader or whatever, you know, that, well, he has to do his morning meditations and his centering himself so that he can go out and be a more savage capitalist. I think what we're describing is not that. In other words, I think we're describing a spirituality that is not a support of capitalism. It's not a support of the, the world as it's given to us by the culture. But I think we're describing a spirituality that in fact checks out of that that is a deconstruction of that. We can see even the word peace, you know, oh yeah, I want to be peaceful while I'm earning the billions on the stock market or whatever. But I think the point is that we're describing an alternative reality that is all-encompassing. It's encompassing of our relations with other people, of our thought life, of our daily activities. Uh, and so I think maybe that's the difference. You know, when I mentioned the cheap spirituality, that I think that a lot of cheap grace or evangelical Christianity can be a kind of crutch or a kind of support for being a good American, for being a good stockbroker, uh, dot, dot, dot. But I'm assuming if we do this thing right, that in fact it disenables that kind of aggressive, violent, orientation it is an alternative orientation to everything so it's, uh, it's not self-help and as matt was saying you know all the saints, many of the saints uh, are not successful like in the terms of the world and so that's who you're trying to emulate you're not looking for success and another way of putting it is prayer doesn't do anything uh, i think it's a good in a good way we say prayer doesn't do anything in other words it's not about getting some gain for yourself. It's not pragmatic. It's uh, actually about becoming like God, as Matt was saying, becoming God, the unitative way. I mean, that's This is the traditional language for all this in the West anyway, is 
the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive ways. And so it's not as if you progress through those things either. In other words, you know, in this life, we're always going through the purgative way in some way or other. And hopefully we have glimpses of illumination. Most of us don't think or expect that we'll really be united to God in this life because, you know, we are not like God. God is not a man like us. And I, I think that's helpful in a sense that the spiritual life should be profoundly impractical. It's like, this is not going to help you get through life. This does not bring you health, wealth, and happiness, et cetera. Hopefully it brings you some kind of inner peace or joy, as you were saying. But that's more the sort of thing St. Paul was talking about when he says, you know, I can be content with a little or I can be content with a lot. I think it wasn't very many weeks ago we had the reading in the lectionary where he and Silas are beaten and imprisoned, and it's just before the earthquake happens to set them free, but they're sitting there in change, and they begin to sing him spiritual songs and pray. And I think, well, yeah, that's the picture of the spiritual life, um, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, Matt, what were big, you've, you've been describing them already, I think. What are some new things becoming Eastern Orthodox? What does the spiritual life look like there? that might be unique or different and how I, and I asked this sort of because I found it interesting when we would have conversations and I would say, well, do you have a spiritual director? And you're like, I'm not for sure if they do that in the Orthodox church. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know either. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, they definitely, they definitely do. If, if someone's willing to do it. And by the way, you know, John, you know, both of you guys have been spiritual directors to me and I gotta, I gotta thank you for that. There's no way that I would be, for, for better or for worse, you know, there's there's no way that I would be where I am um, without your help and your direction. And um, certainly, Paul, your theological direction has been just central and is central to who I am and um, our friendship and things like that. And John introduced me to the Jesus prayer. That was a, a life-changing uh, experience. But there's there's so much that comes with... Um, you know, I guess, I guess for me, like, like Paul was saying, you know, that everybody has their own context and situation and you got to do what you got to do, especially with the way that the things are today in the church. And uh, mo most people are just sort of checking out, I think. Um, and even even people who may be dedicated in some way are just, are just really struggling with what it must mean to be, you know, John and I were talking about the other day is like, well, is there even a future for Christianity in in America? You know, it's, and he said, well, yeah, you know, in the nooks and the crannies and stuff like that. And I think he's right about that, you know, but for me personally, I'm, I'm so thankful that I was able to discover the Orthodox tradition for me, uh, both theologically, but also for the reasons that we've been talking about, because I, I've learned things, just simple things, you know, I never used to make the sign of the cross, you know, and again, that was something that I would look to someone and think like, what's that? That seems like maybe like a superstitious thing or something like that. But you know, if you read like the life of Anthony and uh, many of the other ancient works, it's like, well, this is what the, this is what the Christians did. Um, and they did it for a number of reasons. You know, they did it because they, you know, we pray not just with our heart or with our lips, but with our body. That the, the sign of the cross is a powerful, powerful sort of communication. And a lot of the fathers talked about how it's a powerful communication in, with the, in the spiritual realm, that, that the demons and things know. And, and as Christians, you know, I just take it for granted that there are uh, adverse powers. This is absolutely the teaching of the scriptures of the early church. And I know that we've maybe moved beyond that, quote unquote, you know, in, in the modern world. But I think that's a that's a terrible mistake. It's like the Kaiser Sose, you get you know, the usual suspects. I don't know, you remember that movie where he says at the end, you know, that the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. 
It's like, well, I think there's a lot of truth in that, you know? I bring that up because in, in the liturgy, we, we do a lot of, of making the, the sign of the cross anytime, especially whenever the, the Trinitarian name is invoked, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and so that's just one, that's, that's one small thing. Also, the mysteries, we call them, you know, the, the sacraments, we call them the mysteries. The, these were, for me, and, and, and continue to be, absolute game changers, you know, for the way that I, the way that I live the Christian life um, for many different reasons, but not least, you know, so the, the, the chrismation, the unction that we do when you're initially received into the church, what I like about it is, is that they're kind of saying, this is a big deal for me, at least, you know, my priest said he wanted me to be a catechumen for at least a year, you know, because he wanted me to experience the whole yearly, you know, cycle of all the feasts and the fasting and things like that. And it's almost like, you know, are you sure you want to do this? And to give it your best, you know, during that year, give it your best and see if it's something that's going to help you. And I asked him, I was like, well, when I finally do it, am I going to sort of see any difference? And, you know, Father Gregory, he's funny. He's like, well, you'll get a boost. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? You know, he's like, you'll, you'll see, you know, you'll get a boost. You know, it's absolutely, it was, was right, you know, but I think a lot of that has to do because whenever you focus and you, you, you really say, okay, I'm going to do this thing, you know, I'm going to give it my best, which I think is all God really is asking for any of us is to, you know, to, to, to do your best, to put the work in, you know, and yes, it's all grace and yes, it's all unconditional love, you know, and it's all love and we understand all that, but uh, it's just, again, like if you love football, you're going to go out and you're going to put the work in too. You're going to try to become the best football player that you can be or soccer player or basketball player. You're going to shoot a thousand three pointers a day or whatever your regimen is. Right. But for me, you know, whenever I was, uh, when I was, when I was chrismated and, and then, you know, for us, another mystery is the mystery of confession. So you have to do, for me, I did a, a life confession for my first one, which was rough, you know, cause we had a lot to talk about, you know, we do it a little bit differently in the, in the Orthodox tradition, you know, um, it's not that you're confessing your sins you know, to the priest. It's that you're standing before the icon of Christ and you're uh, you know, you're sort of confessing your sins to him and the priest stands as, as kind of a witness. And then, uh, it's less about understanding that that, we, that I had throughout most of my life of sort of like your guilt has been removed uh, and more about let's have a conversation about healing. You know, let's let's have a conversation about, OK, it's like, you, you know, the, the theme of your confession. Well, the first confession, the theme was just like, man, my life has been a train wreck of sins. Right. But once you continue to do confession, it's like, well, a lot of times you might find that there's a little bit of a theme that's running throughout. You know, maybe you're dealing with anger or maybe you're dealing with lust or just whatever it is or greed or, or envy or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, the priest is there to say, you know, if you want to, we can talk about this. Right. And, and to talk about it's less about the what did you do and more about the well, why did you do it? Why did you look at porn? You know, why did you get drunk? Why did you get envious? Why did you, you know, whatever it is that the person might be struggling with and to talk about the healing that comes from that. So to me, that's just absolutely, you know, again, like a game changing critical difference, I guess, that, that's been my experience, you know? And so if you have a good spiritual director who gets to know you, and by the way, you got to be, you know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. So you can keep things from them if you want. You can uh, hide things and things like that. Even though at the end of the prayer, you know, he says something like, you know, after you do the confession, you kind of get down on your knees. Well, now actually, I think it's before. It's the before he says, uh, before you confess, he says, you know, my son, you're not confessing to me. I'm, I'm a sinful man, you know, but you're, you're confessing to our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't leave anything out lest you walk away worse than when you came right you know what i mean because it's How like do you ever leave well that, that's the thing it's like because you're you're just lying to yourself yeah. but we mention all those things that we forget as well
No, <laughs> yeah, we have ahead. a clause. Yeah, I <laughs> and I confess all those things I can't remember right now. Also, no, no, no. we do too. And I do too, for sure. Because you're not going to be able to say it all, right? But if you know you got something that you've been carrying around, it's like, well, you're just playing a game. It's like, if you're going to come and you're going to confess, then come and confess. We can play a game with this whole, like, like you know, Paul was just saying. It's like, we can do make this whole thing of Christianity just a big game that we're trying to get something out of it. Maybe we're just trying to get our fire insurance taken care of so we don't have to go to hell. Or maybe we're trying to get health and wealth or good standing in our community or business relationships or whatever it is, you know. But if you take this thing serious and say, man, I got to go and confess this thing that like, I really, really would just rather not talk about. I'd rather forget about it and just pretend like it never happened. But it's it did happen, you know, and, it, and, it's, and it's probably happened more, you know, often. These are the types of things that you know, before, because I didn't make the passage, you know, through all the way through, you know, the uh, the Episcopal um, experience that I had before I became an Orthodox, although that would have been available for me had I done that. So I just went right from Protestantism into Orthodoxy where there was no confession and then there was, you know. So in other words, like these mysteries of unction, and by the way, so what we do as the chrismation ceremony, ceremony is probably the wrong word, but the, the mystery, the sacrament, there's also unction services throughout the year, you know, on special days where it's one of my favorite services that there is, you know, the prayers, the gospels that are used, all the readings, everything come together in a beautiful way. And of course, it's all based upon James 5, you know, that if anyone has sinned or sick among you, have them, you know, come before the elders and have them confess his sins, you know, and, and be uh, anointed with the oil and to experience the joy. You know, it's like you got to kind of do it to, to know what it is, but to experience that feeling of joy or the or to, when you do confession to experience the uh, the relief. And it's a it's a very humbling. It can be like kind of a crushing experience, right? Because it's like you got to really put yourself out there, you know, and especially the worst thing is having to go back and having to confess the same things. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm a setting sin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's rough and it's, and it's humbling, right? For me, so, so remember in the Orthodox Church, you know, it's the actual pure body and precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a preparation that goes into that. You probably don't want to turn up on Saturday night because you got to, you know, you're, this is a big thing that you're doing on Sunday morning. And, you know, they, they ask you to fast, you know, so that the first thing that passes through your lips is the, the body and blood of Christ. And so, and, I, and, you, and once you start getting into that liturgical cycle, it's like, well, you're always preparing for like the next, you know, the next feast or the next season of confession or the next, whatever it is. And so I think that all these things are, or even the marriage, you know, they're, they're the marriage, it's a, it's a mystery. It's a sacrament for the Orthodox. So we, even though I was already married, Margaret and I went through that and, and did that. And, and we've absolutely found, you know, a huge blessing in that. I just, for me, I could never go back just because of the, it, it is kind of like what we call like a, you know, fronty ma. It's like a mindset that you begin to, it's a, it's sort of a different way of, of just having your being in the world. And, and of course, at any moment, right? Like I was saying earlier, you know, we can, we all can fall off. We can all fall into grievous ends and things like this. But the point of, I think the point though, is, is that, so when you go, it's like this morning we had a liturgy, it's like, okay, I'm going to start again. I had a rough week or whatever, but it's like, um, here's an opportunity here to start again because there's, you know, there's forgiveness of sins and in, in the, in the, in the Eucharist and things like that. And you say, okay, let's go, let's do this again. It really is a, a lot, a very different way to kind of see the world. And the last thing I would say about it, a big difference I think that I've noticed in, in, in my tradition is that our Lord Jesus Christ became a human being. He came to this world, to this material reality, you know? And so we say things like, well, whenever he was baptized, it's not that the waters changed Christ, it's that he changed the waters. 
you know, he changed the earth whenever his precious feet touched it. We have things like holy water, where it's like, so we pray over material substances and we ask God's blessings over them. So whether it's the, you know, the bread or the wine or the water or the oil, just these basic elements of material creation that and it's not just the priest it's the whole congregation we come around and we ask for god to to sanctify these and change them and bless them etc and then we you know we use them and uh, even with the icon icons are very important also in, in orthodox spirituality the, so my house is filled with icons and it's a kind of constant reminder of the saint's presence with us and you can just look at the icon and be reminded of like oh yeah you know saint isaac uh you know, or, or St. Mary of Egypt is my favorite, you know, uh, of the females, well, besides the Theotokos, but like, well, here's a woman who was a prostitute and I'm not speaking, this is just what's in the, in the, in the tradition is that she enjoyed her work as a prostitute so much that she didn't uh, oftentimes wouldn't charge her customers because she enjoyed it. And to make a long story short, she repented and she went out into the desert for 40 years or something like this. And so her icon, she's very, you know, sort of skinny and she's been fasting and stuff like that. And it's just such a wonderful story of someone who just left everything behind and went out to the desert. And that unitive experience that, that John was explaining, you know, of divinization, it's like, well, she, you know, you can look at her icon, in other words, and go, oh, yeah, it's like in a, in a moment, her story comes back. And there's hope. I can ask St. Mary to pray for me. I can say, St. Mary, pray for me. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a cool thing, but it is a different way, I think, of, of kind of living as a Christian for me. So I thought, Paul, you might be particular, like this conversation, I think, applies to your work in some way. And that I had begun to wonder, with the way that you read Romans 7 and Romans 8, well, what makes that real? In other words... If Romans 7 is not just the state of anybody, a Christian or otherwise, if it's not just kind of general to humans, if it is the pre-Christian state, then what makes Romans 8, that reality of life in the spirit, real? Is it just a pronouncement of God? Uh, how does it become real in our lives and our, in, our, in the world? Because, I mean, sometimes Romans 7 seems to be the lived out reality, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wondered if, ha, have you thought about that in answer to that question? It would seem like maybe that is the spiritual life, but for, I've never thought about it exegetically before, I guess. I think that there's an experiential difference. I mean, that's what we're saying. There's a definite experiential difference between Romans 7 and 8. I think sometimes we're hesitant to say that. But no, I think that the experiences that we have, and again, not that we're looking for some drama, but maybe there is just an appreciation for the life that we have, you know, very simple things are on display in chapter eight of Romans. First of all, it is this picture of a kind of participation in who God is, but then also a capacity to walk as Jesus walked. A very simple thing that we have this capacity. Is it a capacity of the will? Uh, you know, I, I I don't think it's just grit in our teeth, but I think we're enabled uh, through the Spirit that there is this uh, life of obedience that is opened up to us. There is a picture then of you know throughout Romans eight, it is a picture of not simply a participation in the Trinity, but a, a participation in the body of Christ the the person of Christ. And I think that actually what's there in, in chapter 8 is that we see the world now from the perspective of Christ. Not that Christ is an object, but that now we stand in the place of his understanding, or we take on the mind of Christ 
in our apprehension of other people in the world. And I think that's the connectiveness. You know, it's a very simple thing that we're doing right now for us. We're having this conversation. But think of the, the beautiful thing this is. And think of how in most people's lives, there is not this connection with other people, with the world. There really is the deep things of God. You know, I, as far as I know, that's the deep things. That's the only deep things there are. Everything else should be leading up to that. And I think that's the, the picture of the love of Christ that is there in uh, chapter 8 of Romans. So, uh, yeah, I think it is a, a real-world experiential difference in which, first of all, belief itself, we think that we struggle to believe. But actually, I think that, that this is a kind of place that our insight or thing that is put upon us that is a gift itself, that is a way of seeing itself that love, that suddenly there is this connection. That's a way, the way I've described it in the past is that, you know, we often think we're in shallow apologetic approach, you know, we're continually having to prove these things to, uh, to ourselves that, oh, you know, here's these grand arguments. But of course, what, what has opened up to us is an alternative world, an alternative experience, an alternative frame of mind that is itself a kind of self-evidential. And I think that's the thing. There is this experiential difference. It, as Matt said, you know, it, maybe it sometimes involves the ecstatic, but I think, in fact, what it normally involves is just our our day-to-day -day experience. Just a graced life. A graced life, yeah. Yeah, I got, as you were talking, I was thinking, it's sort of like the Didache, even. Uh, Romans said, uh, the Didache begins with, there are two ways. One is the way of death. One is the way of life. There's a great distance between the two. Choose the way of life. And then the rest of it's about that. Seems to be sort of what Paul's saying, isn't it? Here's Romans 7. This is the way of death. Who can set me free from this body of death? Now here's the way of life. Yeah. It's life in the spirit. Yeah. Which is the, the life. I, Steve Cohn used to have just a quick little phrase, and he would say, well, the work of the spirit is to make the life of Christ alive in the Christian. I thought, oh, that's great. That's a great mm -hmm. way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, just life itself. Mm -hmm. You know, when we understand life is in Christ, that this thing that we have, what a, what a gift it is that we have. I think that is the connection in prayer that we're really talking about. There is this, we're pausing and saying, wow, just an enjoyment, a gratitude for life itself, which is, I think, a direct experience. That is the experience of the Spirit. You guys know a little bit about my history and stuff like that. And so when Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, it's like, man, we can take this thing for granted. You know, I think this conversation that we're having or this graced life or, or you know, or the life of prayer or whatever else, but man, people are miserable. I mean, people really, people are struggling and they're lonely um, and they're, they, they're, they, they don't have any friends, you know, they don't have communion, they don't have community, you know, they are very sad and, and, and joyless and things like that, and hopeless, you know? And so I think that, you know, we've been trying to walk this thing out for a while and we have, at the very least, I think we all have a whole lot of hope, you know, which is a precious thing, precious thing to have hope. Uh, and faith is, a, is, is just such a, uh, it is such a gift. Of course, the love that, that comes from that. And then again, you can take it as far. That's what I love about all this is like, you can take it as far as you want to go. You know, if you want to read the Bible, go for it. You know what I mean? If you want to get into the fathers, 
go for it. If you want to fast, you know, I mean, you can ratchet this thing up as high as you want to go. If you want to go to, you know, to confession more than the, the, the next guy or whatever. And if you want to voluntarily, you know, sort of bring hardships upon yourself and instead of seeking out comfort to sort of find out opportunities to not be comfortable and all those different things, it's like, that's all available to you. But the grace of God really does come to us. I think, you know, I just think too, I was thinking about whenever I was recounting the differences that like you were asking about, you know, Orthodox spirituality and stuff like that. And Father Gregory said something to me, my priest, he said, I said, well, what did, you know, what did, what kind of boost did you get? You know, and he said, he said, thought about it for a second. He said, well, you know, looking back, he was like, I, I really think that I was starting to get some insights into the scriptures that I never had before. And of course he's seminary trained. He went to Holy Cross, you know, well, after that he would already been Orthodox, but he, he'd already been studying. And I think that what we're talking about is a conversation that, that Paul and I've been having in, in one of the classes that he's been doing. And that is, is that, you know, so I've been reading Origin of Alexandria who, um, you know, is, is probably my favorite. Well, I just say he is my favorite of the ancient authors, you know, and he talks about how not only that we can read the scriptures, but how I think we can just understand life or live life. And that is for him, there's what he calls when it comes to the scriptures, the scriptures, the literal, you know, or maybe in just life itself, it's just the fleshly, you know, orientation. And so for the, in the scriptures, there's the literal and there's kind of like the moral meaning of like, oh, yeah, this is like what's right and what's wrong, you know. But then there's the highest, which would be the mystical, you know, the spiritual, the Christian. Paul calls it the theological. But I think it's the same thing with life. You know, it's like you can kind of live life. This is Kierkegaard's, right? right? This is Kierkegaard's kind of stages on life's way, right? That there's the aesthetic way to live, you know, the, the bodily, the, the sense perception, you know, so the fleshly, the bodily the literal maybe we could call it the letter or whatever you want to call it uh and then there's the moral you know so for kierkegaard that's the ethical you know or maybe we just as people as human beings we just kind of live a moral life you know hey i try to do the right thing i try to and then that's good you know it's good to to, to live a moral life and to be ethical and to be a good judge or whatever else it is you know but then for origin or for kierkegaard you know that the highest though is the spiritual life the the mystical for origin and so it is with the scriptures you know it's like you can you can read the scriptures and it's good to, to read but it's good to start there right to, to just kind of read the scriptures you know you got to know what it's about you got to know what it's about and you, that's right and you got to have the history and it's the same thing that's what i'm trying to articulate well, i mean literal for origin wouldn't even have been history it's just you have to know what it's saying right <laughs> does this is it coherent Right. Well, and, and, and someone like Dave Lubach shows that it, it is, it does for origin mean historical too, because you have to have the historical, you know, understanding to, to draw the mystical out of it, you know, right? So it's like, and, and, and what I'm trying to do is relate this though to life, right? So you have our lived experience, the historical, whatever you want to call it. And so you can kind of just live life in that way, you know, and then maybe you're moral on top of it. You're kind of a good guy or a good woman or whatever, but to, to get to what mysticism, the mystical sort of orientation, the spiritual, the theological, the Christian, though, is to read the scriptures in a, in a different way, right? To, to understand, to peer through the merely historical or the mere letter or even the merely moral, but to peer through all of that and to see Christ in every article in every preposition you know um, origin looks at what's in the text and even what's not you know what the prophet said and what he didn't say mm -hmm. or god you know in this in this instance the prophet said the people instead of my people or whatever so he's very careful at looking and the reason why he's doing that is because he's trying to find christ in the scriptures and so 
all that to say that I think that the conversation that we're trying to have is that you can have that same orientation to, to just human existence, right? And so I got that too. It's like, man, once I started to, to try to do this thing in the tradition that I'm in, I did start to um, understand the scriptures a little bit differently. And there's a depth and there's, a, I would say, like an infinite depth there. And then, of course, that can carry over, though, into friendship that can carry over into your work that can carry into your prayer life that can carry into everything that you do because it's a it's a christian orientation it's a and so that's what i at the very beginning i started out by saying well mysticism could be an ecstatic experience or an altered state of consciousness or whatever but for christians it's to come into contact with christ himself to be united with god and so that spiritual understanding that we can apply to the way that we read the scriptures is the way that we should as christians try to strive to live so that we can experience the fullness of reality, experience Christ himself, you know, who is incarnate in the scriptures, who is in some way incarnate in the mysteries of, you know, the sacraments, who, who I think, again, I've said before, like, even in this conversation, he's here somehow in a, in, a, in a mysterious, mystical way, where two or more gathered in my name, I'm there. So he's here. I think that in some way I'm looking at him right now and you guys, right? And you're looking back. So it's, it's just a different way to see with the spiritual, you know, there's the physical eyes and there's maybe the moral eyes and then there's the spiritual eyes, you know, and there's the, there's the spirit, there's the physical ears that we hear stuff. And then there's the moral, you know, we, we hear good things and we, you know, uh, but then you can hear with your spiritual ears, you know? And so there's levels, there's levels to this thing, you know, John, I'm glad. I, I think this is a great topic and one we needed to, we need to address and address more. I think that this is a conversation that's worth continuing. Yeah. You guys have inspired me. And I think, man, I, I think it's an area that I wish I had a deeper grounding in that I think in the traditions that you're in, uh, that you do get that by, yeah. it is a benefit of that. So yeah. should be anyway. If all this is so good and you can really work on, you know, vices and become virtuous and have the love and grace of Christ in your life, why does it, why isn't there more of that out there in Christianity? And uh, just because we, it's hard for one. I mean, so even as somebody who has tried, I guess I still feel like a beginner. It's hard. And it is hard. It's sad because it's available. I mean, that is maybe the difference. I think I could speak for orthodoxy too, is like it's available and it's not hidden. It's up front and center. It's talked about here. Come do this. Uh, enjoy the full life in the church. Be a part of this. Read these things. We'll read them together. It's very much different from a sort of academic discussion. It's less threatening, and yet people still just whatever. Yeah, yeah. Rather live noisy American lives. What do you think, what do you think is going on there, John? The devil. I, don't, I mean, honestly, yeah, it's our, it's our self-love. It's sin. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.